You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Amen. It's uh, sure good to sing and worship the Lord together. And um, I'm really looking forward to this winter. We are going to be studying the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to have a long runway taking off into it because we're going to be actually looking at the life of the Apostle Paul for the, for the next four weeks or so. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a, a passage of Scripture in the book of Acts that describes how this man that's so incredibly important in the New Testament, half of the books of the New Testament come from his pen, 13 of the New Testament books. Um, and so how is it that he came to be a follower of Jesus Christ? So we're going to be looking at his conversion and uh, studying the subject of conversion this morning, especially The English word conversion actually doesn't appear too often in most of our English translations of the Bible, and yet the concept and other synonyms are there often. And the the English word, kind of the etymology of that word, comes from the idea of of, um, new new beginnings. It comes from the idea of uh, turning around, moving from one place to another, the transformation idea, conversion. Uh, in the scriptures, the synonyms that are most often used for the concept are things like repentance, which means a change of mind, a turning around, the term regeneration, Jesus' term being born again, certainly refers to conversion. And uh, I actually uh, liked what John Bonk said last week. I listened to his sermon uh, on, the, on our webpage, and uh, he really was defining conversion when he said that Finding an identity in Jesus Christ that supersedes any other identity you might have. That that really describes conversion. Having an identity that supersedes all other identity that you might have. And that's one of the reasons why so often when someone is converted to Christ, uh, loved ones, other people say things like, I don't feel like I know him anymore. And that's because, indeed, a new identity has come. I mean, a new perspective, the old perspective, the old paradigm, the old reference point has been set aside, and now a new reference point has come, a new person, a new understanding of who makes me, me. And so it's a radical thing. And that's why now conversion to anything, I mean, you can talk to a, someone who's a convert to a new sports team or a new, or coffee or something, and, you know, that, that kind of radical start begin. But even more so when we talk about Christian conversion to Jesus Christ, because there literally is a, a, a fourth dimensional element of the Holy Spirit coming into an individual's life and beginning to clean up the house, to set things in order, to put God where God's meant to be on the throne and to put everything else where it's meant to be. And so there really is a new identity. Um, That's why one of the favorite phrases that Paul the Apostle uses in all of his letters, and we'll see this in Ephesians, is the term in Christ. He saw himself as a man in Christ. He had a new identity. He said, "For, for me to live is Christ. He said, he said uh, everything else that I considered valuable before, I consider as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. So he had a new reference point, a new identity. So converted people are hard to tone down because they have been turned on to Jesus. 
in the Christian realm. And, and, and that's radical because there really is more than just this change in mind or lifestyle or ethic involved. There is a literal presence of God that enters and changes that person from the inside out. That metamorphosis starts to take place. And so this morning, in addition to studying the Apostle Paul and his conversion, I invite you to join me in thinking about how does Paul's conversion align with your conversion. And if you can't say that you, you have that converted state yet, well then consider what it is that causes someone to be converted. In other words, if you've sung all the worship songs so far and, and it is not well with your soul perhaps, or you can't sing all those songs quite the way you heard them being sung, you feel like you're kind of a spectator looking at others that are talking about an experience that you don't share, well then ponder what it is that, that is in common, as Paul's experience is described in the book of Acts, and think about what it is that God might want you to be doing in an exchange with him, in understanding his grace more. Well, um, in the Old Testament there are many examples of conversion, Abraham and Sarah, for example, in, in Genesis chapter 12, they were... They were actually false worshipers. They worshipped the moon and the sun. That's what they did in the era of Chaldeans. And, and the, the living God, Yahweh, comes to them and he says, uh, follow me and come. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and they leave everything and they go and they follow the living God. Uh, we see in a conversion in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 6, he has this incredible vision as he's in the temple one day. And he has a vision of three things. One is how holy God is, this exalted God. At the same time, he has a vision of how awfully sinful he is. And when you put those two together, that can cause absolute despair. That's what causes many people to convert and to come to Christ. But the wonderful good news that is, is explained more in the New Testament, of course, through Christ... The, the uh, angel comes to Isaiah and he takes a live coal off the altar, a burning hot coal, and he touches his lips and he says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So this holy God and this sinful man can now have united fellowship. That's what happens to Isaiah. Paul's conversion is more like the prophet Jeremiah, though. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Paul, or Jeremiah is saying, that God knew me before I was even born. And that's, kind of, that's what Paul says. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 15, When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by His grace and was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, he says. Paul had this understanding that even before I was born, God had me on His mind. He had set me apart. He had, he had a purpose for my life. But that, that's a conversion that doesn't start with, you know, someone exploring the claims of Christianity or something. That's in a conversion that, that when it's really understood, it starts to understand that way back, way back before I was even born, God was pursuing me. God had plans for my life. That's critical to, to understand. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus is the center of all conversion. And uh, Jesus comes and he starts preaching in Mark chapter 1. What does he say? He says the first word out of his mouth is repent. What does that mean? It means convert. It means turn around, change your mind. And so Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. Repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when, when we see Jesus' last words in Matthew 28, what does he leave with his disciples? A message of conversion. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. So conversion is, is really central to the whole Christian message in the New Testament. Next week we will have three young people uh, two of them been up leading worship, uh, Hannah and Jordana and our son Jonathan, going to be coming and they're going to share their conversion story, their faith story. And uh, they're going to talk about what happened for them to be converted. Now, these three grew up in Christian homes. What does it mean for someone who grew up in a Christian home to repent, you know, to turn to Christ, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ? And then after that, they will... We'll lift this curtain here and we'll, we'll have a waters of baptism. We'll go through the waters of baptism, which is a symbol outwardly of being all sin washed away and having been dead and buried with Christ and rising to live a new life. So we'll witness that and, and we'll hear some of their language that they use to describe their conversion. You know, sometimes language of conversion is very colorful. The Bible uses colorful language sometimes in talking about someone's conversion. We might hear some colorful language next week. Talks of, of uh, unique stories, people, events, circumstances, all that God used to bring these people to the same gate that all of us must come to. All of our stories might be different. None of us are the same. There's no stereotype. And yet we all come to the same doorway, the same gate. There's only one way. It's salvation through Jesus Christ. And so how we get there, though, is it's incredible what God does. And next week, we'll hear three different stories. The Bible has various stories of conversions, uh, radical conversions, and not so radical. I mean, there's some like the Apostle Paul. So we, we call them the road to Damascus conversions. If you hear that terminology, you're talking about someone that, like Paul, we'll read about in a moment, he had this blinding light on the way, and, and he was literally blind for some days. God can confront people that way. I've heard many testimonies like that. Others are not so radical. They're kind of the slow-rising, awakening, like the rising of the sun kind of testimony. Like, like Nicodemus, for example, when he goes to Jesus at night at the beginning of his ministry, doesn't want anybody to know that he's talking to this rabbi. And then by the end of his ministry, after Jesus is dead and, and, and is already gone, I mean... He's the one that goes with Joseph of Arimathea to gather the body of Jesus. He is a follower of Jesus now. Something happened over those three years, a slow rising. Uh, we see it in Lydia. We see it in the, the Apostle Matthew. More of a slower coming to Christ. Some of you might have that kind of testimony. I do. You know, I, I know the moment, uh, or not the moment in time, but I know the... Uh, the time in my life, the season when God was getting my attention, grade 11. I've talked to people who can't say that they ever have known a time that they didn't know Christ. Some of you might say that this morning. I mean, you might think, oh, I don't have much of a testimony. I've always known Christ. Well, that's an incredible testimony, first of all. But, but some people would discount that. And I wouldn't. Uh, we'll hear next week, three Three kids growing up in Christian homes. What was it that happened in their lives that came to Christ, the repentance? You know, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he says this. He says, convertedness as a condition is more important than conversion 
as an experience. So in other words, what he's saying is that it's more important that you know today that you are in a right relationship with God because you know Christ died on the cross for your sin. It is all well with your soul. It's more important that you know that today than you can point back to some date on a calendar when you kind of prayed the prayer or walked the aisle or did something like that. And so conversion described various ways in the scriptures. Um, We see various people that grow up uh, pagan and come to Christ, like in the book of Acts. We see others that grew up religious, come to Christ, Paul, Timothy, etc. We see description of conversion in terms of darkness to light, born again, restored to purity, death to life, turning from Satan to God, a new creature in Christ Jesus, being set free from slavery. These are all imageries and metaphors used to describe conversion. There's no stereotype. And yet there's a turning from and a turning to in the midst of it all. And so uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. And as you're turning to the book of Acts, which is right after the four Gospels in the New Testament, um, there's actually three times that the conversion of the Apostle Paul is shared in the New Testament three times. Once is in Acts chapter 9, when Luke, the author of Acts, is telling the story of how Paul was converted, literally talking it through. The second time is in Acts chapter 22, where Paul is in Jerusalem, and for uh, reasons of uh, various incidents, he has, is actually, a mob is trying to kill him. And he is being beaten and severely hurt, and in the midst of all that, uh, just before he gets killed, the Roman soldiers come and rescue him, because he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And so in the midst of that, before they take him out of the area, he says, hold it, I want to talk to the crowd. Can you imagine? He's getting beat up and killed, almost. He wants to, and he stands up and he shares his testimony with this angry mob in Jerusalem. And then the third time that we see his testimony is in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, And there is where, because he appealed as a Roman citizen to a higher level, he actually stands before the king of the territory northeast of Palestine, and his name is Agrippa, King Agrippa II. And so that's what chapter 26 says. And we're going to read that uh, right now, the third incident of his testimony in chapter 26. And so if you have your Bibles, or would you like to listen along, I would invite you to stand with me right now to hear God's word. Acts chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts, tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here, and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, the governor, interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. God bless his word. You may be seated. Let's take a look at this passage of scripture and Paul's conversion. But let's take a look at it through the lens of having the homework of preparing your own testimony. And uh, so let's walk through that. And I'd like to share three simple points. And the first one has to do with the fact that, that in any testimony of conversion that is being shared, there has to be respect. There has to be a respect factor for the ones that are giving of their time to listen to you. I mean, if you're going to ask somebody to hear your story, if you're going to expect someone to take the time to to listen to what happened in your life when you were converted, you ought to have great respect. You notice in chapter 26, verse 1, he's given permission by King Agrippa to have the chance to share. You you ought to have permission as well from your friends or family members or whoever if you're going to share your testimony. You don't barge into their lives and preach at them. You get permission. You have respect. We see respect in this. Paul says, I feel it. I'm fortunate to stand before you. 
Uh, he's, he's complimenting him in verse 3 about his knowledge, about the prophecies. Uh, even when he's before an angry mob in chapter 22, Paul, he, he's, he's been beaten up by them, but he turns and he shares and he says, fathers and brothers. And he, and he aligns with them. He, he aligns with them because in, in that situation, he chooses to speak Aramaic, the common language of the, of the mob. And, and he chooses to align with them by saying, you know, I, I'm part of the sect called the Pharisees. I was trained under this wonderful rabbi Gamaliel and, and so on. And so there's this alignment, whereas when he's with Agrippa, the king, he's been there only because he's appealed to his Roman citizenship and he appeals to reason as he talks through. He's reasoning with the king. The Romans loved reason. And so we see this respect factor. And uh, we ought to do that too. When we have a chance to share a testimony, whether it's publicly or privately, we ought to think about, do I have permission? Is there a trust factor? Is there friendship? Is there something that we can depend on here? Is, is this something that I'm forcing on them? Or has God opened the door? You know, I can tell you that when I've decided that I'm going to do this, you know, on Thursday night, I'm, I'm having coffee with so-and-so, I'm going to share my testimony. Usually that just kind of goes wrong because I've orchestrated it. And it, whereas, as John Bonk shared last Sunday night with us, this theology of interruption, if we're just ready to be interrupted by God or by others' agendas, then oftentimes the Lord brings the moment when I'm not even really expecting it, but I'm ready. I'm prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope I have. And so I would encourage you to think on what does it mean to show respect to the ones that are in your life that maybe you'd love to share your story, your faith story with them. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's going to be through uh, participating in this course, uh, Who I Am in Christ, that you're going to gain some confidence, you're going to understand more about your story, and you're going to be able to, to meet with one person and and share more clearly just exactly what Jesus Christ means to you and what he's done in your life. I've had, uh, I had the privilege over the Christmas break to talk to a Muslim man, and, and uh, at the beginning he was asking me some sort of ethical questions. And so I began, and I was tentative to quote from my scriptures, the Bible. And, and as I spoke with him, I would refer to say, I don't know what the Quran says, but my Bible says this, that Jesus taught this, about the third time that I did that, he, he finally said, you don't, you don't need to refer to the Quran anymore. He was, I think I showed him enough respect that to, to then he gave me permission to quote from my scripture. I think that's important. I spoke to a young woman this past week, came to see me, that was his uh, witnessing to a Jewish man. <clears throat> and she was asking, well, <clears throat> how do we do this? How do we, how do we align? And I was trying to encourage her, just why don't you... Uh, come at this as, as the Old Testament does, just looking at Jesus as the Messiah, considering the prophecies and so on, listening to his story and then aligning. I got a phone call this past week from Desiree Godin, who's uh, serving with YWAM in Bangladesh, and there was a group of them last week that went to a park and were sharing, and there was a Muslim man that was somewhat aggressive, and he, he got in their face and said, uh, why are you Christians here in our country? I guess Bangladesh is like 90% Muslim. And uh, in the midst of it, uh, they had the courage. She said, uh, does it not say in the Quran that, that you should look at and read the Gospels and learn about Jesus, whom you call a prophet? And he admitted that, that the Quran does say that. And so she said, 
Well, then why don't you read the Gospel of Matthew this week, and we'll talk next week about Jesus again. Again, I think that's just showing respect. It's, it's acknowledging this person comes to this discussion with a history. It's not just about you preaching and sharing your story. Maybe that story needs to be heard in the process as well. Second thing I'd like to say is that uh, in addition, we see the shape and the content of a testimony comes out in what Paul says. Oftentimes when we're preparing people for baptism to share a testimony with the church family, we usually tell that there's three parts to a testimony. And it's kind of like the B.C. and the A.D. and the, then the time in between the two. There's the before Christ. You know, what was your life like before Christ? What has God done in your life since knowing Christ? And then there's that transactional time, that exchange moment, that, that thought process, that, that dealing with what was it that caused you to turn to Christ and to know him. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because Paul kind of unpacks his testimony that way. It's more apparent in Acts chapter 9, but it's seen here. The B.C. The BC time is in verses 4 to 11. Paul was very zealous for God. As a, as a Pharisee, he was, he was earnest about righteousness, about pursuing obedience to the law. And, in fact, whereas many of his colleagues might have just put up with that Nazarene sect and that Rabbi Jesus from way up north. He didn't put up with it. He felt that it was antagonistic to a genuine Orthodox Jewish faith. And so he put it upon himself to go to the high priest to get written permission to go to other cities and rally and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. He was aggressive. That's what he was like before he met Jesus. Paul's testimony, I think, alerts us to the fact that oftentimes when we are talking to people, that there is a reason why they may be antagonistic or not antagonistic to the Christian message. And, and that Christian message may come with a whole load of baggage that is legitimate or not legitimate. And so for you to just jump in and blast your, your story without understanding or listening may be wrong because there's a lot that they're coming with that might, if you listen to them for a while, help you understand what it is that they're struggling with really. What are the misconceptions? If you get a picture of, of the Jews after exile coming back from Babylon and they come and they find that the walls of Jerusalem are all all just thrown down. Can you imagine the destruction of Jerusalem? These massive boulders that were just... Put, pushed over and yards from where their resting place was. And Nehemiah has to rally the 12 tribes of Israel and the remnant that returned and, and actually rebuild the walls. Well, what had to happen first? They had to clear away the rubble. They took days clearing away the rubble before they could start building the walls. Sometimes when we share our faith, when we talk about our testimony, that's a lot of what we're doing. You know, some people might call it pre-evangelism or something. I don't know, but it's just clearing away all the misconceptions. You don't know what somebody has come to interpret your faith, that you say you're a Christian. What does that mean? Or you're a Baptist? Or what does that mean? And so you need, need to take time to, to hear and listen. And uh, sometimes there's a lot of misconceptions, rightly or wrongly, 
Many people today, uh, for many people today, our faith is a cover for being narrow and for being unaccepting of others and for being unloving and bigoted and anti-gay and oppressive of women. And the list goes on and on and on of the perceptions that people have of what Christian, Bible-believing, Christ-following, church-going, what it means. It's not all the same. And there's a whole host of reasons why people resist. So somewhere in the midst of it, the problem is that the belief that all people are created in the image of God, and all people deserve to be loved and respected, regardless of their ethnicity and their belief and their religiosity and so on, somehow that gets lost. We, we're not good sometimes as Christians with loving the sinner while hating the sin. We're not good at that sometimes. And the message gets twisted. And so these, these perceptions build. And you might be talking to someone, you want to share your faith story, that's wonderful. You might need to debrief a little bit before that comes. So before the, the, the before Christ portion of a story is important because when someone shares their BC story, then the one who is an unbeliever listening starts to hear what were the boulders in their way? What were the obstacles that they had to move out of the way in order to build a strong faith in Jesus? What was it that kept you back for so many years? And so on. That's the BC story. Of course, in between the BC and the AD is the, is the story of what really took place in this conversion. Too often, you know, a, a testimony kind of has the hourglass shape, you know, there's the, the B.C. story, the before Christ, and oh, before I knew the Lord, and then they, they go on and on about, uh, you know, whatever it was that occupied their value system and their time. And then after Christ, there's all, oh, ever since I met the Lord, uh, he's changed, I don't think the same, I, you know, my life is better, my, you know, etc. Some things might have gotten worse because it kind of causes friction in some relationships, but, oh, you know, and there's the A.D. stuff. But then there's this little part in between where often testimonies kind of don't do much. They, they kind of wrap it all up with, and then I accepted Jesus. Or then I surrendered my life to God, or something like that. And, and for the listener, especially the unbeliever listener, is, they're probably wondering, what? <laughs> what, what? What happened there? I mean, I get the BC part and the AD part, but what really happened there? And that's why we try to encourage this more balanced approach in testimony where people do take the time as we coach them through their testimony to think about what did happen in my thought process? What were the people that God used, the events, the circumstances? What was it that I started to believe that I didn't believe before that? What did I start to do differently? How did the Bible play a role in that? What was my praying like in that time? What, what decision did I have to make? What were the key critical things in my life? What did I have to let go of in order to hold on to Christ? That's all critical part of stuff here. And then Paul goes into that in, in these scriptures, actually in chapter 26, verse 15 to 18. As Paul begins to talk to Agrippa, he says a lot of the content there. What is conversion? Verse 17, being rescued by God. That's, that's conversion language. God rescued me. 
uh, opened my eyes, verse 18, spiritual eyes are opened. That's conversion language. Turned from darkness to light, from Satan to God. Received the forgiveness of sins, verse 18, and uh, being sanctified, made holy by faith in Christ. That's all good language to describe what someone came to believe or understand about what God was doing in their life. Paul shares later on in verse 20, says, talks about repentance, turning to God. That's conversion. Being, proving repentance with deeds. My life changed. And then verse 23, where this idea of the Messiah Christ had to suffer, he had to go to the cross, he had to be raised. Understanding that only Jesus on the cross could pay for my sin. And Paul had to, Paul had to let go of all of the other wonderful righteousness that he was pursuing in obeying the law. He had to let go of all that and say, it's rubbish, it counts for nothing, because only Christ could make me right with God. Only he could forgive my sin. Then there's the after Christ part in verses 19 to 29. Paul talks about his life after Christ. He did a 180, literally. He, was, he went to Damascus intent on persecuting Christians. He left Damascus being the persecuted. And sometimes coming to Christ is not an easy thing, is it? You know, sometimes there's a cost. Many parts of the world... If you declare that you are going to be a Christian, your family will disown you. You will be, you'll be ostracized, criticized, condemned. Paul faced a lot of suffering because of his decision to follow Christ. The third point I want to share is the goal of a testimony. And um, Paul gets various responses to his testimony, he gets Festus, first of all, who says, Paul, you, you've, you're, your learning has driven you crazy. You know, you're, you're a madman. You've gone nuts. You know, and you might get that from somebody if you are recently converted or if you remember when you first came to Christ. I've known people who have just come to Christ and that Christmas everybody gets a Bible for, for Christmas. And they go, what's going on with that? You know, like... Or, or somebody else comes to Christ and, and that's all they want to talk about. Well, that's what a fanatic, a, a convert is all about. And, and as I said earlier, I've known spouses whose spouses say, I don't feel like I know them anymore. Well, in some ways they don't. There's a brand new identity that takes over. And, and you need to be patient with that unsaved family member or friend because, because your goal is that they would come as well to know Christ as you do. And so Paul, he, he, I love the goal, is, is summed up in the response that the king gives to Paul in verse 28. He says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replies, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. You know, whenever you share your faith story, whether it's publicly or privately, your goal ought to be that someone would come to Christ, that someone would know that the Jesus that you've come to know as your, your center of your life, the most important thing about you. I hope that when we hear the, the three of them that share next week, they're not sharing just because, oh, you've got to jump through the hoops here at White Ridge Baptist Church. No, I, I hope that they're sharing because, because they really want to share 
what Jesus did in them. It's compelling when somebody's words match their life. It's compelling. I, I love the fact that Paul in this passage mentions prayer. He says, I pray that you also would be Anybody listening to me today would come to Christ. He's, he's aware that, that this conversion thing is not just about trying to win the argument. It's not about having a great story to share. It's not about being better prepared in the Scriptures to defend the faith. It's really about the Holy Spirit working in that heart. And so we must pray. We say, oh God, please. I've had people in my life that I've, I've been sharing with, not even from this pastoral ministry, but going way back to other pastoral ministries. And I've had people in my life that for a long time now I've prayed for and I've shared my faith with and I still long for them to come to Christ. I've talked to people here in the city since I've lived here and I've shared my faith, I've shared my testimony, I've talked about the Lord, I'm, I'm praying for them to come to Christ. I know in some situations, I can think of one right now, there's, I don't know what else I could say. We've talked about it so much. It has to be that God, the Holy Spirit, starts working from the inside out. And so long time or short, you know, one of the dangers is that you've got, you've got people in your life, family members or friends, and a long time ago, maybe you did share your faith with them, but then it kind of just, you don't want to be preachy, right? And so you just kind of let time roll on and time rolls on and pretty soon you just kind of accept that's who they are and this is who I am. And so you stop sharing and you stop praying and you stop seeking and looking for opportunity. And I want to encourage you this morning, if uh, somebody's come to mind, may 2014 be the year that you and I have a lot of opportunity to share testimony, to share about what God did in me. Kevin, would you come? And would you bring the worship team? And the song that we're going to conclude the service with has a lot to say about conversion. And as you listen to the words, as you sing the words, my prayer would be that you can sing them as your personal testimony. And if you can't sing them as your personal testimony, I would encourage you to pursue this God that we're going to sing about. And boy, I'd love to talk to you if you'd like to about, about Christ if you yet need to turn to him and have that conversion in your life, that transaction in your life, boy, I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. And uh, God bless you. Thank you.